Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So today we have something that you've probably heard, something that is said quite often, especially in those horrible instances when someone has died, sometimes unexpectedly or tragically, and we grapple for the right words, the words that we want to speak to help someone know that it's going to be okay or that God is in control. We're looking for the words and out comes something along these lines. God needed your loved one or God needed another angel, which we'll talk about in a minute, or, you know, this is what God wanted. And that can be so horrible to hear for someone who is mourning. Imagine someone who has lost a child or lost a parent, lost a sibling so close to them, or lost someone that they hold in high esteem and who is very beloved, and to hear that this person is now gone and dead because God needed them more than you did. That's not a helpful message to hear in your time of mourning and crying. Instead, well, I think what we're looking for is something to help people make sense of the death. We're looking for something that we can offer to them to help them get through this dark moment that will help them find once again some joy and some light in their life, but we struggle. And so a lot of us will default to what I just said to you, uh, including that piece about, you know, God needed an angel. And we'll get into that in a minute. That's going to take a little bit of unpacking to do. But what, one of the things that we're looking for is how do we articulate death and resurrection as Christians? How do we make sense of that concept for people in their time of needs? We call this practical theology. It is our understanding of God and the way that the world works that we can apply in our moment of need or in our everyday lives. How do we translate what we know into how we live? And so as we are encountering people, because death happens all the time. Remember one time my sister called me and she goes, so-and-so just died, and then this person just died, and now someone else will die. And I said, yes. And she said, because it always comes in threes. And I said, no, darling, as someone who does funerals for a living, it just comes. Death just comes. And we have to figure out what we're going to do with it. And so Jesus is addressing this. In both of the scriptures you heard today, both of the gospel accounts, Jesus is addressing death. And the first is that he's having an encounter with the Pharisees. And here's what's something you may not be aware of. They didn't agree in Jesus' day about resurrection. The Pharisees, who were kind of running the local Sunday school system, the synagogues were used to teach people and to read scripture. They were running that system. They were empowered through their knowledge of scripture to talk about theology. They believed in resurrection. Now the Sadducees, the fancy word for the priesthood who were at the temple in Jerusalem, did not believe in resurrection. They were strictly uh, following the Torah. There was no resurrection in the Torah. They did not believe that that was a thing. The concept of resurrection really starts to come in the messianic prophecies, in the prophetic books, in the later half of the Old Testament for us. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not agree. And so the Pharisees come up and they start questioning Jesus. And of course, they assume there's a resurrection in their words. And as they are asking Jesus, they're trying to trap him. They, they come up with this incredible scenario that most of us modern-day Christians go, that is so weird. Why would anybody do that? Seven brothers all married to the same woman, right? 
That's not something that we even want to think about, much less try to figure out, you know, what's the answer to this problem? This feels like the most bizarre biblical math we've ever seen. And what they're trying to figure out is how do you apply something called Levite marriage? So in the Bible, there was a concept of your, your whole point was to get married and bear an heir for your family's land in the promised land. That was the whole idea, right? So if you were a male, you needed to get married and produce a male heir. That was very important so that the land would stay within the family. And what you're discovering here is that that didn't happen for the first brother. It didn't happen. And so what was supposed to happen is that the next brother would then marry her and their first child would be the heir of the deceased brother and receive his portion of the inheritance. And then all the other children would be his. Well, nobody wanted to bear a child for their dead brother who was going to get everything. That was not really something people were excited to do. And so Levite marriage was a very sticky social and religious context. And as they're laying this out for Jesus, they're like, okay, so the bottom line is, who's the husband in heaven? And Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. Resurrection is not like this. It's not legalism. Resurrection is a gift. Resurrection is the concept that God wants to be with us for all time. And the key word here that I'm going to reference later is he says that we will be like angels. Not that we will be angels. That's a different word. Like angels. And Jesus isn't a valley girl. He's not like, oh, and we'll be like angels. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is comparing us in some ways to angels. Not declaring that we will be angels, but that we will have some likeness to them. Angels don't have a hierarchy of relationship in the Bible. Now, there's a whole other tradition, especially in Catholicism, of a hierarchy in choirs of angels. That's not biblical. In the Bible, all angels serve one person, and that is God. And they equally serve, and they do it without distinction. They serve. They show up when God sends them. They do what they're supposed to do, and then they go report back. That's how it works in the scriptures that we have. And so there's this, this struggle here about, well, what is the point of resurrection? Which Jesus then reveals to us in the second reading in the gospel account of John, that the purpose of resurrection is to restore what has been lost, to bring about the restoration that death destroys. And so in this story, which you might be familiar with, Jesus goes to visit a family that he's very familiar with and he's friends with. Multiple places in, in the Gospels, we hear about Jesus interacting with Martha and Mary, those two really famous sisters, and their brother Lazarus. And I always like to think of Martha as the firstborn. She's very type A. She's very orderly. She knows exactly what she's very traditional. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Mary, get up. We're supposed to be in the kitchen right now. Come on. Let's get, let's get our work done. And, and she is very, she's very intelligent. She articulates back perfect theology to Jesus, absolutely spot on. For somebody who didn't go to seminary, you know, hundreds of years before there was a seminary, she really nailed that question for the Board of Ordained Ministry. And then she is upset because her sister Mary uh, seems a little lazy, right? Mary really just wants to immerse herself in Jesus. She wants to sit at his feet. She wants to listen without being distracted by duties and obstacles. She just really wants to pay attention to what he's doing. She's very emotional, as the text would tell us. And so she is thinking kind of with her heart more than with her head. And it takes both of them to be a Christian. So the two sisters don't agree on how to do things, but they're both mourning. They're both experiencing the brokenness that comes from the death of their brother Lazarus. And when Jesus shows up, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And this is really important. He's been dead so long that even though the tomb is sealed, they can smell the death and the decay. His body has already begun to, broken, to be broken down, to, to break apart and to no longer be revivable. I mean, this, it would take science fiction. I mean, this is almost Frankenstein level 
of decomposition here. And when he arrives, he encounters Martha first. Martha greets him. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she doesn't say it to convict Jesus. She says it because she knows that he is the Messiah. She says so. You are the Messiah. And he says, your brother will rise again. And she goes, well, yes, of course, because you have taught me. You have told me that on the day of the resurrection, we will, be, we will rise for the dead. And I believe that because you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I know these things. And then she does what she should do. She goes to let Mary know that Jesus has arrived. And then when she tells Mary this privately, Mary, who is much more kind of emotional in her response, she hops up. She doesn't say anything to all the people that have gathered to mourn with her. And she dashes out of the house. And she leaves so fast that everybody is convinced, oh my gosh, she must be going to the tomb. She must be going to weep there. Let's go with her. And so they all rush out of the house and there's Jesus. He hasn't gotten any further than he was when Martha was there. And Mary comes running at him and she says the exact same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And her, it almost feels a little bit more convicting, like if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Because she's crying. She's been weeping. She has been in this dark place of mourning for four days. And the people have gathered to weep with her. And they thought that she was having a moment where she needed to go and be as close as she could to the tomb. And they followed her there. And there's Jesus. And he sees her and he sees this crowd and the, and the place of darkness that they're in. And his spirit is disturbed and he is deeply moved by their suffering. He is so moved by this. And he says, show me where you've taken him. Where have you laid him? And then he does what everyone who mourns can appreciate that God in human form weeps with us. God in human form sees their pain, sees their suffering, recognizes the void that death brings into our lives, and he responds in kind, mourning with us, for us, and for those that are gone. And then he goes to the tomb, and Martha, ever the Martha, goes, I don't know that you want to do this. This is not going to be very pretty here. And he says, I'm going to show you something. And they roll back the, the, the seal, and there is the tomb. And you can only imagine the aroma that pours forth as they roll that tomb out. And everyone is there, probably like this, and waiting to see what he does. And then Jesus does something very important. He takes time to give the glory to God. And he says, God the Father, I'm God the Son. And I know that you hear me, but I want them to recognize this relationship. I want them to see that you hear. Because not only do they need to see that you hear me, but when I am gone and they start to ask you in my name, they need to recognize that you hear and you act. You respond. And so he asks. And then he turns to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus does. And in this moment, everything is transformed. He didn't just reanimate a dead body. He regenerated a decomposing corpse. He was able to bring resurrection to somebody who had been gone. And Lazarus walks out of his own volition, and he's still wearing the ceremonial bands of cloth. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Set him free. Because the resurrection is about liberation. Death would keep us entrapped in a tomb, and God is not about that. 
One of the most beautiful things about the Old Testament in the book of Genesis is that it has not one, but two different creation stories. They're not the same. I know people like to synchronize them and put them in there together, but they have different orders and different emphases. The first one is the one that is very near and dear to my heart. It's, it's from the priestly tradition, and the priests used to talk about God creating with the word, God creating very orderly and intelligently in six days and resting on the seventh, and there's nothing more priestly than working for six days and then taking a nap after church on Sunday. And so it resonates very deeply with my spirit, and I like that narrative. In the second narrative, it's the one that the common people used to tell around the fire at the dinner table. This is the story they used to tell. It was much more action and adventure in there. It's like, hey, I've created a person, and this person needs a partner. Let's see. How about a hippopotamus? How about a crocodile? Nope, still not working. Let's try all the kinds of cattle. Nope, still not good. Let's try something else. And so there's much more storytelling and dynamic in this one. And once more, that's probably the reason that it was preserved in the text is that it's a very fun story to read about Adam and Eve. But here's the kicker about both stories, something that is undeniable about both stories. And it is this, that humankind was created intentionally. God didn't stumble upon the idea of creating human beings. Very intentional. In the first story, God says, let us create humankind in our image, that we were created to magnify God. And so God creates male and female together, and there they are in the first story, and sends them forth to be fruitful and multiply. And in the second story, God actually has to take the time to craft the Adam, crafts him out of the, out of the ground, out of the clay of the earth, out of the dust, and then intimately breathes life into him and animates him, and he has life. And then we go through the process of creating Eve from this intentional person so that they can intentionally be in a partnership together. And you see all of this here, that we are purposeful. We are not accidental. God intends for humankind to be. God intends for us to be in right relationship with God. But our sin and death and natural evil get in the way of all of this, and God is not going to let death have the final word on us. God has already figured out how to deal with our sin and natural evil. God's ready to conquer death with resurrection. And so in this, we have the exploration here that Jesus is letting us know that death is not the end, that God can, will overcome our death. And that's why every year, the biggest Sunday of the year is Easter. It is not just because we all love pastels and Easter eggs. Easter is about the reminder that every single human being needs that death is not the end. It's not even about our salvation. That happened on Good Friday. Instead, it is about the promise that in our darkest moments, when we are overwhelmed with the pain of death, that death is not going to have the final say. It is not going to win. That Jesus triumphed over death, and so shall we, and every single person that we have lost and will lose all of us will triumph over death. And that's the glory of the resurrection. That's what we're trying to convey when we see somebody mourning and we want so desperately to give them something. We want so badly to give them a word of hope, to give them some kind of wisdom or sense of what's going on. And then we stumble into things like, well, God needed your loved one. You mean God killed my loved one? How is that going to help me? It's not. It's not helpful. Now you've got them angry at God even more than they were. Instead, what we're looking for is words like this. 
You know, you'll never find me saying to somebody, God needed your loved one. That's not something I will say. But I will say at every funeral that your loved one now rests in God. Because whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, they both agree, no matter how you die or what happens after death, God is in control and God has you. God is holding on to you. Now, in the Old Testament, before they developed a theology of resurrection, it was just kind of you were sleeping in God forever. But with the concept of resurrection, it was God will now restore you on a future date. And so God is holding you in trust, remembering you, knowing you, cherishing you and your loved ones. And then when the time is right and Christ comes back and resurrects all of us together, what is resurrected is like angels in that it does not sin. It is eternal. It is perfected. It is in perfect unison with the will of God. It will never die. It will never see mourning or crying or death. It is a new way of existing because when we enter into the kingdom to come, it is an unending celebration and worship with God. And so we need that rest. We need that time to be perfected in God's love so that when we are resurrected, we are ready to start and never end. That's why it's so important for us to have a theology of resurrection because otherwise death makes our faith decay. It convinces us that maybe God can't fix this. It convinces us that maybe the pain is going to win rather than the joy of Jesus Christ. And so that's why the church celebrates Easter so big and bold every year because God forbid someone you love has died in the past year since Easter. You need Easter to remember that not only do we hope, not only do we pray, but we have seen it. We have seen resurrection. People glimpsed them. People talked to him. People touched his wounds. They ate with him. They watched him do all the things that are recorded in the scriptures for our sake so that we who were not there could have utter faith in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because we're going to need it. The longer we live and the more we experience death, the more we become convinced that death is threatening to steal our hope. And Jesus says, every Easter, I am reminding you that not only am I going to conquer death for you and your loved ones, but they are with me until that day. They are not alone. They have not been abandoned or forsaken. They are with me. And I will restore them to you. I will restore us all, is what Jesus says. So what about that little phrase, you know, God needed an angel? Well, there's nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in our canon, nowhere in the, uh, ca the Catholic canon. This is the piece of the Catholic canon that we don't have. So if you put both of these here, nowhere in here does it say that you can be transubstantiated into an angel. Nowhere. In fact, there's only one place that actually says that you can, and you have to go into some mystical teaching of Judaism that's not part of the current Tanakh, their current holy scriptures, and it's certainly not part of either the Catholic or the Protestant Old Testament. Instead, you have to go to a little book called the Book of Enoch, which I just ordered. I didn't have a copy anymore, so I ordered one. I'll show it to you if you would like to see it. Enoch is actually a collection of stories, and here's the entirety of what the Old Testament says about Enoch. Are you ready? He walked with the Lord and was no more. Where do you get angels? But here's what happened. So the rabbis, especially around the Babylonian exile, when they were kind of bored. Exile is boring, just so you know. When you're bored, you start thinking about things. And they said, well, where did he go? 
What does that mean? He's the only person that walked with God and was no more in all of scriptures. What does that mean? At least we know where Elijah went. He went up on a fiery chariot. Like, we know what he did. What does that mean, you walked with God and were no more? And they couldn't stand not knowing. So then they started to tell stories about here's what happened. And one of the stories that they started to tell was, hey, maybe he got taken up to heaven and he was no more because he became an angel. It's a great story, but it's not canon. It's not even really authoritative. And it comes from the Jewish mystical uh, connection within Judaism called Kabbalah, which you may or may not have heard of. Not the Madonna Kabbalah. That's not, whatever she's doing is not Kabbalah. That's not it. But there is, um, especially in Hasidic Judaism, there, there's a strong stream of Kabbalah, of this mysticism. And so you will find people that will kind of take those stories. But you cannot find any, any place in, in the Catholic or the Protestant Bible where it talks about us becoming angels. Because the point is, as I said from Genesis, God didn't want more angels. God has a whole army of angels. God didn't want any more angels. If God wanted angels... Angels. Instead, God got us, chose to have us, knowing that this would be us. And it's a beautiful thing. God doesn't want you to not be you. God wants you to be you, the best possible you. God doesn't want you to, I mean, could you imagine if when Jesus resurrected Lazarus, it was like, Lazarus, come out, and now he was a golden retriever? <laughs> You're like, that's not what we had. Well, he's better now. He will always come and sit and stay. And no, God wants you. God wants you to be the best you, not to be something else. You know, and really angels, you know, it, it's not that exciting. They're in an army. You know, it's a heavenly host. They're in an army. I mean, when you think about what angels do in the Old Testament, especially, it's not really exciting unless you're into that military thing. I mean, unless you're into like armor and swords, like it's, it's not a really involved gig. You kind of show up, you lay waste to Sodom and Gomorrah. That was just two of them, right? They're like, oh, yes, finally some action. And they show up and they incinerate a valley and then they're done. You know, one angel will show up and destroy an entire invading army because it doesn't take a lot of them to do very much. You know, and, and, and everybody, the, the whole gig with, uh, with Gabriel and Mary, only one got to tell the Virgin Mary that she was going to have the Christ child and that's done. There's not going to be another one, right? So the best job's already been taken and we're not getting it. So don't want to be an angel. Instead, you recognize that really what you want to be is who you are. Jesus wants you to be who you are. Jesus loves what's unique about you. You know, Jesus loves what is special about you and the special relationship that you have with God. Jesus doesn't want you to have the same relationship that all the angels have. Jesus wants you to have the relationship that you have in its best possible form forever. That's what Jesus wants for you. And Jesus wants you to have that same best possible relationship with your loved ones forever. I mean, and there are moments where you think about people who have died and you think to yourself, you know what? I would really like to see them again. There are people that I have lost in my life. My, my father's mother has never seen me preach, never saw me you know, as clergy, never got to see it because she died while I had just started seminary. And so I think to myself, wouldn't it be cool if she could see this because my whole family's Methodist because of her? Wouldn't it be great if she could see that this is what she did? She might think differently. But this is what she did. And the, the reality is that I think about it, and I'm like, well, I don't know that there's a lot of preaching gigs in heaven. I mean, when you got Jesus, like, what am I going to do? Like, everybody stand up. Jesus is here. Everybody sit down. Because he's going to preach. I don't need to do that. 
And so I think to myself, you know what? Here's the best part about the resurrection is that Jesus is going to take care of that stuff. And I really get to spend all eternity being with my grandmother and telling her about the things that I did and, and sharing her experiences and letting her know that that faith, those kernels of faith that she planted in my father, that then he planted in me, they were worth it. They were worth it. That's what, that's what resurrection is about. It's not about, you know, getting our own way, and it's not about thinking that, you know, God's going to rebuild us into something totally. We're not transformers. We don't become something else. Instead, God is going to perfect this. And wouldn't you like this to be perfected? Aren't there people that you've lost that you think, you know what? I really love them, and I miss them, but it would be nice if they could be perfected. It would really be nice. There's a few of those in my life. Right? That I would love it if when we got resurrected again, my grandfather didn't constantly pick fights with all of my aunts and my uncles. That would be nice. It would be really nice. That would not be a good eternity. That's a different place, not the kingdom of God. And so you think about these things that are going to happen for us. You know, and that's why when we're seeing somebody who's struggling, we get to say to them, you know, let's just, let's just be honest. This is horrible. Death is horrible. It's so bad that Jesus cried. That's how bad death is. But it's also so bad that God isn't willing to let death win. And maybe, maybe this isn't helpful right now. Maybe, maybe this is not going to work for you right now. But we believe that you haven't seen the last of your loved one. We in the church believe that God is holding on to them and is nurturing their memory and will restore them to you so that you will hold them again. You will hear their voice again. You will get to be in their presence again forever ever. And I hope and I pray that one day when you are ready to hear that, that God will speak that truth into your heart and it will uphold you and it will carry you through until God presents you with your loved one again. Maybe that's what the words that we're looking for. Maybe that's what it is that Christians are yearning to find, but instead we grasp for the wrong thing because in the moment when we're struggling and we haven't thought about, well, what would you say? What do you say to a mother who has lost her six-month-old child? What do you say to a couple that have overcome four different bouts of cancer only to find out that he is now dying from Parkinson's? What do you say to those people? That's why, as Christians, we have to think about our theology of death and resurrection now. Because when those moments come, we will grasp for things that are not helpful. We will pull out things that we've heard. We always default to things, and that's when you realize your mother is coming out of your mouth, right? That's not what you're looking for. You want Jesus, right? You want Jesus. You didn't come to give them your mother. You came to give them Christ, right? Not that your mother's bad. I love my mother. I love your mothers. I know some of your mothers. But here's the, here's the real thing for us. When we are confronting something as horrific as death, we have to remind people who God is and what God wants. God is a God that knows us and loves us. And God wants us to not only be with God forever, but to be with each other. That's why resurrection is important to us, that we can be with one another again. And that's the message that we have to convey. And some of us will feel the need to convey that with words, and some of us will feel the need to convey that with our presence, with those who are mourning. And some of us will feel the need to convey it in ways that we cannot yet fathom. But as long as we are keeping true to that message, that Jesus weeps when our loved ones die, 
and that Jesus will restore them to us, then that's when we are being most faithful, not only to the gospel, but to Christ our Lord. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.